This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. I don't like sand. It's rough and coarse and irritating, and it gets everywhere. But not like here. Here, everything's soft and smooth. <laughs> hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we talk about uh, film franchises one movie at a time. I'm your host, Gabe Green, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, James Hamrick. How's it going? Pretty good. I think you just turned off anybody who is listening at this point with <laughs> with the creepiest line ever. But it's so beautiful. All right. Uh, so as you probably guessed, we are currently working our way through the Star Wars saga. And this week we are discussing the second film in the much beloved prequel trilogy, Attack of the Clones. And uh, joining us this week to discuss this masterpiece is our friend Joseph Vuk. Welcome to the show, man. Hey, I appreciate you. Uh, and I uh, just about that. I don't like saying I James had turned off. I feel like he might have used the wrong word there. But, you know, that's only some people. I'm a little odd like that. Well, you are the right person for this episode, then. I am the right person for this episode. Let's go. All right, uh, so you just want to briefly introduce yourself to our listeners? Uh, yeah, I have worked with uh, James in particular in the past um, over in Audio Asylum. And also written some art- articles with Article Asylum, which uh, we both worked on. And through that and various other means, uh, we worked together. And so far as Star Wars goes, I grew up on the prequels. I've loved the prequels and avidly defended them throughout their lifetime. Uh, episode 2 in particular is just a wonderful masterpiece that is underrated in so many ways. See what I did there? Haha. hey Continuity. <laughs> Callback. Yeah. All right. And before we begin our discussion, I want to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please take a moment to go and rate and review us on iTunes and like us on Facebook. Uh, before we get to the main review, we want to talk a bit about the behind-the-scenes story of this film. Uh, Lucas was very late in getting the script out. He didn't have his final draft completed till only three months before the shooting began in uh, March of 2000. He wrote a few more drafts before bringing on Jonathan Hales to help him out. Uh, the final draft was only completed one week before the shooting began, and a lot of the shooting was uh, was done off of an early draft. That's how late he was. Uh, Lucas wanted to give the film a much slower pace than Star Wars usually had, uh, so, so he could have that the love story woven in. Uh, just he wanted it to be you know this grand sweeping love story and. Um, for better or worse, I guess. <laughs> uh, the Clone Wars in the film is obviously a reference to the line uh, from Luke in A New Hope. I don't know if he has actually admitted this, but I think it's pretty obvious that the vastly reduced role given to Jar Jar Binks was due to the huge backlash the character received uh, after The Phantom Menace. Um, you know, he listens, apparently. Yeah, and just about that, I think it is confirmed. Just The working title for this one was The Adventures of Jar Jar Binks. I think everybody kind of... <laughs> Wait... Are you serious? Yeah, like just on like before it was actually fully named, like on all of the working scripts as a joke, they were all entitled the the Adventures of Judge Binks. Yeah, just to talk about the casting, uh, obviously the majority of the cast came back from the Phantom Menace. Um, for the newer editions, obviously since this took place ten years after the Phantom Menace, Jake Lloyd um, was recast as Anakin, or Jake Lloyd was recast and the role was taken over um, by Hayden Christensen. Um, among actors who auditioned for the role was Jonathan Brandis, Ryan Phillip, 
Colin Hanks uh, and Paul Walker. Uh, Lucas also met with DiCaprio as well, Leonardo DiCaprio, but he was unavailable. Uh, and like I said, it ended up going to Christensen. Uh, for the film's primary antagonist, Count Dooku, the always incredible Christopher Lee was hired. Um, and reportedly, Lee was actually offered the role of Grand Moff Tarkin back in the 70s, but turned it down. Um, man, that, I mean, I absolutely love Tarkin as it stands, but that, man, that would have been something else. It, it fits so well. They, it's funny, you know, just because they share so much history with Hammer Horror and things like that. Um, so, for the role of Django Fett, uh, I think I'm pronouncing his name right, Tamura Morrison was cast, um, as well as playing and voicing all the clones, and then obviously he would later go back and re-record lines uh, in the original trilogy, like Empire Strikes Back, to play Boba, to maintain continuity. Uh, and lastly, <laughs> in just... Well, in a role that's funny to see now with his fame behind us, Joel Edgerton appears as young Owen Lars, uh, Luke's uncle. Um, and then just another little weird cameo, we see Rose Byrne as Dorme, one of Padme's handmaidens. Uh, and it's, it is kind of weird thinking about how many of these big actors Lucas was able to spot you know, so early on. Because at this point, I think a lot of these people hadn't really done anything. This was, you know, Natalie Portman's first big break. I don't know of anything Edgerton or Byrne were in before this. Um, so yeah, it's it's funny spotting all these little cameos that you forget about. Every time I watch Attack of the Clones, I'm I always forget that Joel Ed, uh, Edgerton shows up as Owen. Uh, and uh, the filming began in June of 2000. This was the first Star Wars film to be shot entirely digitally. Um, actually, only the third film ever to be shot in that format. It was also the first Star Wars film not shot in England. Instead, the majority was shot in the Fox Studios in Sydney, Australia. The Tatooine scenes were once again filmed in Tunisia. For this film, Lucas relied far more on digital effects than even the, than even the previous film. Uh, there was a lot of pioneering work done in pre-visualization, so he basically had the entire film made in the computer before he even started shooting, and that way you know, he could keep track of all the digital sets because they built very few sets. He was actually rather proud of the fact that he built almost no sets for the film. He just allowed you know, the actors to act out and build the sets around them digitally. Um, another thing for better or worse, but yeah, there's a, a lot of uh, pi uh, pioneering done as far as the visual effects. Um, the action sequence in the factory assembly line was a reshoot uh, because Lucas felt there wasn't enough action in the film. And the sequence was so reliant on CGI that the live action portions were only shot in four and a half hours. Uh, it was this film where, uh, we were introduced to uh, CGI Yoda. He had been a puppet in all previous films, and eventually the puppet version that was used in The Phantom Menace was replaced with the CGI version from Thank this film. Thank God. <laughs> I, I like Puppet Yoda for I that. abhor Puppet Yoda Ooh. in The Phantom Menace with every fiber. That is like, honestly, that is scarier than a scary gremlin. <laughs> he is uh, a bizarre the, thing in episode one. He okay. The VHS I watched growing up had Puppet Yoda. I never had a problem with him until I met you, James. So uh, I even as a young child, just seeing Episode Two Yoda versus Episode One Yoda, I just went, "This makes so much more sense <laughs> as a thing." <laughs> <laughs> and it feels pretty pointless to say that uh, ILM, uh, John Williams, and Ben Burt did awesome things in this film. I mean, it's Star mm -hmm. Wars. And finally, the film was released on May 16th of 2002. Uh, so before we move into the main review, I want to ask you guys, do you remember your first viewing of this film and what has your relationship been with it 
uh, over the years. You've uh, touched on that a little bit, uh, Joseph, but uh, how's that been for you? Yeah, so I do not specifically remember my first viewing, actually. Um, I, I remember as a child wanting to watch Star Wars even before I was like old enough to really get wanting to watch Star Wars. And uh, my parents held off for a little bit because I was still pretty young. But then as I, I got to watch, you know, eventually the original the original trilogy to one to two. Um, and then a couple years later, actually watched Revenge of the Sith in theaters, which was wonderful. Um, but yeah, so episode two was really kind of the one that looking back, I was very excited to watch because it was the fresh one out. Um, about the time that I was watching the Star Wars movies. Um, I kind of just missed the theater line, I think. Like, I think it had fresh come out of theaters when I was catching up with the series. Um, so it was it was kind of the one, and it, uh, again, you know, obviously child nostalgia, it was amazing to me as a, as a kid. It, it encaptured so many things, and I'll touch on this later, but it captures so many things about Star Wars that is Star Wars to me, the, the iconicness of Star Wars. Um, now, obviously, uh, there are flaws, and we will definitely be getting into that, I'm sure, but uh, it, it just showed itself to have so much power in its action and its fun and really in its world i think is where a lot of it came for me was just taking the idea of grand scale that's in the phantom menace that they couldn't do in the in the original trilogy and just taking that idea and exploding it i mean we get and i don't want to go too fast here but we get into like the underbelly of coruscant we see camino we see a completely different take on asteroid fighting and, of course, Geonosis itself, which always amazes me that they were able to put a deserty planet right next to a deserty planet and it feel completely unique and just... Huh. I mean, if you think about it, like, that has literally been from Tatooine Desert to Geonosis Desert and it felt like a different planet with a different locale, with a different architecture the eight the insectoid architecture always was great to me yeah i never thought of it that way but that, that kind of proves your point yeah i think the world of star wars really got opened up to me in episode two which is one of the i think one of the key reasons that i've grown to love it so much awesome uh what about you james so seeing uh, attack of the clones in the theaters this is both my earliest star wars memory uh, as well as my earliest memory of going to the theater. Uh, apparently, I saw movies before, like a couple Disney movies or something before this, but this is my very first memory of the theater. Um, and ironically enough, in the theater, I was actually fairly bored with it. But when it came back, like <laughs> I knew that we were supposed to like love Star Wars, so when it came out, I was like, oh, we got to have it. And then I ended up falling in love when we actually started watching it at home. Um and then kind of similar to what Joseph said, a lot of what I think, like a lot of what I think of when I think about Star Wars does actually come with this. And that is probably because this is my earliest memory. Uh, I guess a recurring theme on this show is I, my, my recollection of my history with Star Wars is fuzzy at best. Uh, but this is something that I do have in concrete with this being 
I, I don't remember seeing it in any form before this. And so that there's no way that that doesn't kind of paint the way I see this movie. But honestly, if you were to say Star Wars, especially before I've kind of re-fallen in love with the whole series, uh, my thoughts instantly go to the what's essentially a car chase in Coruscant and Obi-Wan on Kamido. Like that's visually in my head, that's what I'm seeing when I hear Star Wars. Um, so yeah, I, I've... I've always really, honestly, I'll say this, like, there's not a Star Wars movie I don't love. I, I love all nine of the films, um, and obviously it's no different for this one. I, I really do love this movie, and I've, since I fell in love with it as a kid watching it at home, it's kind of maintained ever, except for that that small bit where I, I definitely went full pretentious film snob and was like, ah, oh, the prequels suck, <laughs> but, uh, but I like to think that I've gotten over that, and I'm like Joseph, I actually find myself pretty consistently defending the prequels as a whole. Okay. Uh, so as far as my first viewing, I do remember very distinctly when it was our family. We were on a family trip and it was playing on the hotel TV. Uh, I think we came in right about when uh, Anakin and Padme land on Genosis. So we basically caught the best part of the movie. Um and I do remember really loving it, you know, the entire arena scene, the crazy monsters and Yoda lightsaber fighting, which was oh, the coolest thing I'd ever seen ever. And it still it still is. Uh, so, yeah, I, I did quite enjoy it. However, this like Return of the Jedi is by far the Star Wars film that I've seen the least. Um, it just, you know, I, I'd rather watch I would much rather watch either uh, The Phantom Menace or. Revenge of the Sith. So this one just kind of fell by the wayside. I saw it occasionally. And so I don't I don't have that kind of deep nostalgic connection that you two have. And unfortunately, I think I do agree with a lot of the criticisms thrown at this movie. Um you know, just even with this last video, I was like, this is this this is the most prequel of the prequels. You know, when people <laughs> talk about the prequels. And all their problems. This they're kind of right about this movie. Uh, I hate myself for saying that, but yeah. So I think I will kind of be the voice of negativity, or you could say reason, on this no. episode. We don't spell really lies, so, Gabriel. We don't spell <laughs> lies. <laughs> yeah. So I'll, let's just dive right into this. Um, so first, I just want to talk about you know what is this film about. I think it's really interesting that uh, Lucas employed uh, a split, a very distinctly split narrative, very similar to what he did in The Empire Strikes Back, where on one side you have Obi-Wan going and investigating the assassination, and on the other side you have two blocks of wood pretending to be in love with each other. <laughs> and so it's, you know, it works quite well <laughs> in uh, Empire Strikes Back. And I do love the idea behind what this film is. You know, this is the, this is kind of the story this, we had all the seeds of doubt being planted in the Republic, in the Phantom Menace. And here we have, we're basically just seeing the cr the cracks just getting bigger and we, all this just confusion and doubt. Like there's like four, it feels like four or five different scenes where we cut back to uh, Yoda and Mace Windu basically saying, yeah, we got no clue what's going on. <laughs> it's probably not that many, but it really, it, 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 there's just a constant um atmosphere of doubt you know both in the in the jedi in the republic and you know the very notion of you know sh you know why why should we even have a republic so all these you know questions and doubts are being put around and we also have you know 
uh, the film opens with an instance of, uh, of terrorism, which we haven't really seen in Star Wars. We are getting a very grim look at, you know, this one great civilization that's, you know, desperately trying to maintain um, its status. But just we have, you know, civil wars and revolutions and just all this chaos happening. And so I, I really like that. And it, it, it actually seems that this like if I were to pick a core narrative of the film, it would seem to be that because that that's, you know, you have Anakin and Padme kind of doing their own thing. And and Obi-Wan's plot sort of does interconnect with the with the conspiracy aspects. But it, it seems like the core of the film is, you know, Mace Windu, Yoda and Palpatine kind of just like destroying liberty and becoming uh, what will eventually become the Empire. Yeah, I definitely feel like the um, the tensions in the film rise very well from The Phantom Menace, where in The Phantom Menace, you see the seedlings of Chief Palpatine, the senator from Naboo, then arising to, you know, meet the challenge of becoming, um, wow, Brain's Chancellor. A surprise, to be sure. Yes, but a welcome one. <laughs> Uh, but then in two, you see the fruition of that and the destabilization. You see also the machinations on the... And this is one reason I enjoy the film is that actually I find repeat viewings are very nice. Um, not necessarily 50, but like if you've watched it a couple of times, you actually gain more insight. Um, something I appreciated about The Phantom Menace 2 with uh, Padme being the handmaiden, etc. Very similarly here, the more you think about Count Dooku and Palpatine as being the heads of both sides and working together, the more you see how well orchestrated the deconstruction of the Republic is. And that always just fascinates me. Yeah, Palpatine's long plan is absolutely beautiful. Yeah, I, can I talk about the beginning a little bit? Because I think it's it's pretty relevant to what y'all are talking about with with this movie's overarching plot. Um, but does the very like beginning scene feel like almost a little bit jarring as a Star Wars film in a good way to me? But like it, it's so different from the typical oh, opening. Yeah, with it like we we see this very like dimly lit, cloudy setting, and we open with like an assassination attempt. It's just, it's such a weird way to open this and it sets a somber mood going forward. For sure, for sure. And not to go too off the uh, story topic, but that just reminds me, something again that I love in this movie, which they've done some previously, but the, the idea of taking a setting we already know and putting it in a completely different scenario, whether that's a different time of day or a different set of weather, or that kind of we mentioned Tatooine and Twilight. Uh, we have Coruscant and Mist. We have it. It's nightlife. Um, seeing the grander scale of Naboo. Um, yeah, and, and soft focus. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, we'll, we'll count that. Uh, <laughs> no, but that's something that I just love in general. Is seeing all the uh, the visuals, not the CGI visuals. I'm not talking about that right now. But just the, uh, I'm forgetting the word for the it. The overall aesthetic. Yeah, of, the aesthetic, the, the landscapes is is really good. Definitely. 
just one of the things that I thought was interesting was, again, something pretty new to Star Wars is the idea of a mystery. Um, like, not the mystery in that, yes, the Phantom Menace, it's a Phantom Menace, but more the uh, almost the mystery movie for, like, the first act, um, mm-hmm. where we have Obi-Wan going on a chase to find a mystery assassin, and... That it's interesting seeing that in a Star Wars movie of all places, because much like episode one brought on this like political side that people weren't expecting. A lot of people hated, but a lot of people loved. Um, I think we loved it uh, as our I think. Did y'all do y'all love it? I think y'all. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I thought so. I could literally just watch two hours of Senate hearings <laughs> in that huge Senate chamber. <laughs> Star Wars Senate is so much better than American Senate. Let's let's be honest. Uh the the more spinny platforms the better <laughs> but yeah uh the idea of a mystery being a primary theme in a star wars movie that's been uh, star wars being so iconic for kind of straightforward the plot goes here and you take a stop here and take a stop here they're very much just you know adventure movies yeah and so to have that extra layer is an interesting uh move uh, uh, a bold choice that is something we mentioned in the last episode is that this for better or worse is an entirely different genre from mm. the the original trilogy. And, and, and like, you know, for, for, for like the last decade, people have been taking that as fact to prove that these are bad because they're different from the original trilogy. But I think just, I, I personally, I find that one of their strengths, I think that is just interesting how, different they are at their core the, the the basic type of story they're telling is fundamentally different in you know nature and structure and style from what he did in the, in the uh, original trilogy yeah and then to, just to talk about like the idea that we have such like a pervading mystery uh and sense of confusion over it to kind of go back to the original scene i guess the scene immediately following the the assassination when we're first in that meeting with with palpatine that really kind of even like if the first scene kind of sets the tone or gives you a good idea of what it's going to be, this is where it's like firmly established because there's just this sense of uncertainty in that scene. And there's a lot of good dialogue. I think anybody who dislikes this, I would, I would at least hope that everybody could agree that like these first two back to back, like scenes that set the stage are really good. Mm. Uh, With, uh, Palpatine, first of all, I mean, I talked a lot about it on the last episode, but I don't really care. I'm going to talk about it more here. Ian McDermott as Palpatine is just like cinematic You can't perfection. not talk about it. I mean... Yeah, he he deserves every piece of praise thrown his way. Now imagine how much you're going to talk about it in episode three. <laughs> and I look forward to that because there's this whole new layer he brings. There's a whole on. tragedy to talk about there. <laughs> He's the one character that doesn't get tripped up by Lucas's dialogue. He sells every line he's given, and it never sounds like. Oh, he's, there's you know, at least two. Well, uh, maybe. You're forgetting Count <laughs> Dooku, man. Christopher Lee does it just as good. We'll talk about. We'll it. talk about <laughs> it later. That's right. <laughs> but at least, just within this scene, though, one of the first things that I I love is how you can already feel the manipulations, um, like when he says. You know, he's saying to Padme, like, the thought of losing you would be unbearable. And then he recommends, you know, like, uh, might I suggest, you know, uh, a Jedi escort? 
and he says Master Obi Wan just came back, but you That's know my he's part. saying that. He says like, Obi Wan. You know, he says Obi Wan because he's covering his tracks so freaking perfectly. Because we're like, oh, I didn't say Anakin. I, I, I guess by nature, Anakin would be there, you know, whatever. But I'm just saying, like, Obi Wan would be good. But you know, he knows Anakin is like crushing on Padme. And so by like suggesting, like making the very, very surface level, responsible, mature decision of choosing this now master with a history of, you know, going on missions with her, like it's. It worked like it's above reproach the way he does it, but you can so clearly, like as a viewer, see what he's doing, and it's just so great. Yeah, and we the, we have that scene where after he kills the sand people, where he's admitting it to um, Palpatine. And, you know, it just kind of infers this whole relationship they've probably had over the years, where they've probably been meeting, and uh, Palpatine's been uh, mentoring him. Um, so, you know, he, he probably at one point or another revealed his crush or, or maybe just Palpatine sensing it with the Force or something. Mm, and that's something to talk about, too, is uh, the underlying idea of a relationship being established between Anakin and Palpatine is very strong. Um, that's something I actually noticed even more in my most recent watching. Um, they mm. do a very good job throughout the film pointing at that and then eventually showing it. Uh, the main example I'm thinking of that I didn't notice before was while guarding quote unquote Padme, watching her while she's sleeping. You know, uh, <laughs> I don't think she liked me watching. Her. <laughs> that, that one gets me every time. I crack up. You're exactly how I imagined you in my dreams. Yeah, you know, you know, not creepy at all. No, but in that in that uh, scene, they talk about politics and Anakin mentions that he he likes palpatine he thinks palpatine is a good politician he thinks he finally he's found one of the good ones um and of course obi-wan is showing his a little bit more wise mastery self and saying politicians are politicians man you know <laughs> i love i love it that calling him a politician is his defense of like his position when he says like palpatine see or doesn't show any signs of corruption. And, like, the first thing he says, Palpatine is a politician. Right. <laughs> like, like, that's it. And they do a great job because they don't hang on it, too. They don't smack it in your face. They move from there. I think that that's about when the action starts happening. Um, so it's one of those where you catch it, you kind of get the hint, and then it moves on. It doesn't linger. Yeah, and something else, like, you know, we, we have that dialogue right there. Um, and then once, you know, after the whole chase scene, whenever the actual mission is decided, like Obi-Wan will investigate and Anakin will watch Padme, um, that first meeting they have, it doesn't, he doesn't walk in there like, oh, Anakin, it's been so long. Like we cut right into the middle of their conversation as if like, you know, it's one of a weekly, con like it, it feels like we're not even being introduced to this relationship as if it's like just now happening or happening after like years of inactivity it just seems like oh anakin's seeing palpatine again it's a day in the life yeah yeah and i just think that's really like it sells the idea it almost lets your mind run wild with like what ha like what has palpatine been whispering in his ears for these last 10 years because you have that line in uh phantom menace you know we will watch your career with great interest mm -hmm. so you just you wonder like do, do the Jedi know about how buddy-buddy he's been with Palpatine? And how often do they meet? And it's just, there's... And I, I don't think they do. And I think in their arrogance, they've overlooked that. Um, 
but we can talk more about that later because there's a couple of lines that I that I think kind of point further to their. No, I would definitely. There's definitely a lot of a lot of dialogue moments to talk about. Well, speaking of Jedi arrogance, I think that's another core theme of this film. <laughs> like, there's literally a scene with between Mace Windu and Yoda where it's like they're like, yeah, I don't think we know what's going on. Should we tell anybody? Nah, definitely not. Nah. <laughs> if we did, they doubt us. <laughs> It's like they break up. I always thought that was interesting though, because it's not just nah, we don't want to look bad. It's nah, we have. I mean, it would be like it would be like the CIA telling the world that their servers were downed or hacked or something, and <laughs> that would essentially just be like a giant free for all for hackers for everybody to just go ham on them. And so it's one of those decisions of, do we want to let people know that we're not going to be able to do our job, or do we want to keep people from attacking us? The logic makes sense, but... Oh, it's still funny. <laughs> there's definitely that, that entire... You realize that the Jedi are not all-powerful, they don't necessarily know what's going on, and maybe they're not the best people for this job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and even like before that, in the, the opening like sentence, or not sentence scene, but in the, the opening political conversation... Whenever Padme says, you know, I think it was, I think it was Dooku and Mace, like in his cocky self, like I love him. But as we mm. talked in the Phantom Menace, like, man, he's got an ego and <laughs> he definitely overlooks very apparent flaws. And he just instantly right off the back says uh, he's not capable of doing this. He was one of us. He's a good guy. Like, come on, let's let's be realistic here. And that's the thing. Like, it's just. You know, like, Joseph, over the course of even the original trilogy, I think something we've been noticing is just that this whole idea of the Jedi being problematic, mm -hmm. or, you know, being very flawed, to say the least, has been there, like, way before Attack of the Clones, before Phantom Menace. You know, it was there in the original oh, trilogy. Sure. And so, it's just, you know, if you pick up on these subtle hints in the original trilogy, and then you see where they're pointing towards in Phantom Menace, it is cool to finally see it come to a head here, where... Where Mace comes out and says, like, he, he leaves no room for, like, any sort of, like, decision anymore. Like, whether, like, well, are they saying they're not great? Or he just says, you know, should we inform the council that our ability to use the force uh, the force is dis diminishing? And so we just, we get this Jedi that that have problems and don't acknowledge it. And, and one of his lines that is, it's kind of ironic in ironic it's ironic in a <laughs> retrospect following revenge of the sith is you know he says to palpatine if war escalates you have to know like you have to understand the jedi are peacekeepers not soldiers but we know what mm -hmm. happens with the clone wars that like they go full-on war it's it's just you see all of these statements and then contradictory actions and and a lot of it does it never really feels malicious it just feels like People's... It is getting played. It's what's happening. You can yeah. It's like they're they're constantly scrambling, and it just feels like maybe their ego and sense of pride in the Jedi history and who we are get in the way of them admitting their flaws. Mm -hmm. And I would guess you know whatever the, when the Jedi were first conceived, they were this independent order of like warrior monks who would occasionally you know go out and help innocent people. But it seems like you know sometime in the in the galaxy's history a chancellor requested that they probably interfere in, in, a, in, a, in a war, and they kind of became embroiled with the very soul of the Republic. And now they are basically, you know, they, they should be this independent organization 
that is trying to keep the peace. But now they are, in essence, the right arm of the Republic and are fighting to um, maintain this very arbitrary status quo because, you know, it's the easiest thing to do. And you just see, you see how you, they have their ideals about, you know, not getting involved in, you know, the in, in uh, you know, petty affairs of life. And yet at the same time, they are upholding very viciously upholding this very specific political system, you know, whether or not it's right. And it's just really obvious how just kind of all these contradictions within their supposed philosophies. I want to talk about, I mean, as you said, this movie splits into two different narratives. I want to talk about the one that I, you have your problems with, but that I love without any sort of hesitation. And that is, (laughs) don't you ever say, no, is, (laughs) Obi-Wan's very 70s-inspired political thriller espionage plot. Um, I, you know, I'll say at the outset, I am frustrated with the way it resolves and that it doesn't really, and it really asks the audience to try to put a lot of things together. But the in-the-moment, scene-to-scene way that this plot unfolds is just like Star Wars perfection to me. Uh, and so I guess to start off, you know, we, we can start where where his story first begins, which is just, um, you know, go, going from deck, like learning things from decks and then taking it to the to the council or to the, the archives. And I know a lot of people have problems with Dex's diner. What do you guys think about what? that? Because who would have a problem with Dex's diner? Well, it's just this idea that Star Wars can't take visual cues from the real world you know they'd say the cantina looks nothing like a real bar even though that's not <laughs> you can see the cantina uh, looks like I, a bar. I i think it's pretty ridiculous however i do love decks so <laughs> like i mean it's a 50s diner like there's no getting around that but i i mean i love it and dex is awesome i you know he's got like a minute and a half of screen time but he's such a cool character mm-hmm no, I, I personally love that. Because what I love about it is that it's not like Star Wars took this that 50s diner aesthetic and made the film off of it or made a thing. It is literally one rando shop that this one rando guy that knows things nobody else knows runs. And a robot calls him honey. And <laughs> right, with the robot that's offering some Jawa juice. Like, it's, you want a cup of Jawa juice? <laughs> It it really brought that idea of richness to the world to me, where you're right, Star Wars doesn't borrow real world aesthetics. So the fact that we get this real world aesthetic for five seconds, it just makes you the possibilities for Star Wars go even more. Like, <laughs> but that's that's and just that's me. what's called reaching. <laughs> but I'm okay with that though. Like I'm okay. yes, it's like it's very much like. I was watching the special features before recording, and the the set designer even said, "Yeah, we we took this outline for a '50s diner, and we like changed the benches to look Star Warsy, <laughs> and we added droids." So that's what it is. But man, I love it. Um, but the the main reason I love it is because I love seeing this like sleuth version of Obi Wan, who's got all of these connections we don't know about. Like the Dex is one of many contacts he probably has, and so he finds this dart and he's like, Oh, I know who to go to and he goes and talks to Dex and he gets information there. And then he goes uh to the archives and he talks to oh what's her name? Jacosta something, the really annoying old lady. <laughs> so um, I was I'm not gonna 
Just not gonna. Just <laughs> yeah, but you know, then he learns that this planet that should be there isn't there, and all of a sudden, you know, boom, like mystery on mystery, and we go to what is a huge favorite of mine, uh, seeing Yoda teach. And to me, honestly, I know people say that there's that contradiction with a, uh, you know, Obi Wan in the original trilogy said Yoda trained him, but we see it was. Qui-Gon, whatever, Yoda trains them all, it still <laughs> yeah. holds up, everyone be quiet, it's fine. But, like, I I love seeing that softer side of Yoda. Yeah. And I we hear his theme, like, the da-na-na, like, you hear that play as Obi-Wan first walks in and Yoda's teaching. And just the way Yoda works with the kids, you know, like, lost a planet Kenobi has, how embarrassing. <laughs> like, it's, he, you can see. Embarrassing. Because, like, Yoda's the favorite teacher of probably, like, half the school. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really do like the detective side of Obi-Wan. And this, and this really, pl- I think, played up really well in the in the Clone Wars. Just, you know, he, he follows the leads. And even if, you know, conventional Jedi wisdom would tell him not to, he's going to go wherever the case takes him. And I do agree that... I, my problem with the mystery is that I don't think it actually makes any sense in the end. I don't think it ever should have been a mystery, but the pieces are are quite entertaining. Like just going to Camino. Camino is just such a cool place. You know, this really harsh clinical. Everything's, uh, you know, coated in this bright, like almost abrasive light. And just you know, the outside with this, it's you know, this stormy sea, and everything's calm and clean inside. It's a really cool thing. And, and uh, him going and finding Django and that really tense conversation they have. So you know, like all the parts I do enjoy. I, I just don't understand why it's even a mystery. And then more than that, like it's a, we are set on this mystery because Django Fett tries to assassinate um, Padme. So like the discovery of the clones is an, is a complete accident that, but then, then the, the discovery of the clones is what the film is actually really about, even though it's supposedly about him on this detective journey and then just the whole idea that they are building an entire army for the Republic and nobody even knows about it. It's like, how does how does that work? How is it being paid for? Like, where's the money coming from? Like, if if this planet is actually you know a center a site for you know this respectable business of cloning, and then you know we're supposed to believe that everyone just forgot it exists, and I I, I, I just. I, the entire idea of making that a mystery feels so bizarre to me. The reason, to me, the reason, the way it is, um, they are actually, it is through the machinations of Palpatine, obviously. Mm-hmm. But what's happening is Palpatine's uh, intended for this civil war to happen. He's worked with... Um, through the you know between one and two, he's working with Tyrannus, you know Count Dooku, to create this civil war to start brewing between the separatists and the Republic, and the separatists have an army, but Palpatine doesn't want the separatists to win. He wants his side to win, but he also knows an army is never going. This is the main uh, plot thing in the film. The Republic's never going to okay an army just for no reason and if they okay an army they won't have time to make it for the for the for the fight 
Um, they, there needs to be something to combat the separatists, but it needs to ha- it needs to come very conveniently, and it needs to have to be used. I, I get that. The interesting thing. Oh, I was just gonna say the interesting thing is that they aren't supposed to find the clones yet. That is not that is where things are not going to Paul Bardeen's plan, but he uses it to his plan. Is the the clones aren't supposed to come in yet. It's supposed to be the war is declared, then they get the clones. But they get the clones as the war is declared because Obi-Wan goes sleuthing. So it's just an interesting little turn on events that is still worked to Palpatine's favor. Hmm. I don't know. It just, it just feels weird connecting this mystery to that. And it's like, it, it is such an accident. And if, 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 like, why is, why would they be careless enough to, to put Jango Fett as the one to kill, to kill Padme if it's going to lead directly back to the clones and Genosis? Well, I don't think that that's what he, I don't, he's the, you know, we're given or we're told that he's the, uh, like the this great bounty hunter assassin, and I mean, I guess if if you're already like you know they're using his genetics because he's this great specimen, but I I think it stands to reason we're like, well, we've already got him here, might as well send him. Not to mention the way that they, I mean, it's really because of Obi Wan's masterful sleuthing. It's not like he revealed it. It's and why why did he use a doctor? But, well, no, but here's the thing: he's using the technology he has. He does not. He does nothing to assassinate Padme. He gets his own assassin to assassinate Padme, who sends her own droid to assassinate Padme. The droid is in track. Like he put a lot of steps to prevent himself from getting seen. And even then, when he's about to get revealed, he does a last ditch effort. Um, and that last ditch effort should have been untraceable. That's the thing. Is it was an untraceable dart. Yeah, and I can buy that. It was just honestly like, I can buy that it's just human oversight. Like, maybe two hours after he, you know, after the whole thing went down and he's driving in a space car, he's like, oh, crap, man, I used that dart, <laughs> son of a... But the um, thing is, even using that dart shouldn't have been a problem, because the Jedi archives themselves have no information on that dart. Yeah, you can't really account for, like, this random spice miner who's just kind of living as this diner opener with if he has you know few records on him nobody uh, counts on dex's diner <laughs> uh, for me so i'm cool with the idea i actually like the idea that this little mystery because it's a it's kind of a, a plot device that's been used before where like one strand leads to this whole network of strands and like you were just looking at this one thing and you by accident happened upon a conspiracy you know like we we've seen that kind of story a lot and we know it can work and I think it works well enough here, and I don't even think that you need to eliminate the mystery. I, like I said, I enjoy the mystery, and I kind of like that Obi-Wan happened upon this huge conspiracy. My only desire would have been that they could have clarified it a bit more. What I wish was that maybe we we could have gotten something from Palpatine to to find that, like, They've been feeding them, like, fake responses from the council. You know, like, mm-hmm. okay, things are going well. You know, like, almost, you know, like, let us know how things are going and then route them to, like, this fake. No, I, um, I do think a little bit more would have been nice, but I don't think it's necessary. Yeah, It's just, I don't know. I, I think that if we, because the movie doesn't really come out and explain it one way or the other. There really isn't 
it's all just kind of circumstantial evidence to say that, you know, it was Dooku who eliminated Kamino, or who, yeah, eliminated Kamino from the archives, and that it was Dooku posing as sifo This is all just kind of evidence that we have to, like, extrapolate, and even then when we do, there's nothing really in the story to confirm that. It's just, well, this is what makes the most sense. And so I would have liked to have learned that it was this really, this masterful plan that Dooku posed as him, and that they were able to almost create like a fake republic or a, a Jedi council that could have been in constant contact with Kamino where all, as far as Kamino knows, yeah, there, this is the, this is the Jedi we're talking to and things are going as planned. And uh, the other big thing would be that it's kind of careless for the Jedi to be like, this army was created with no knowledge of ours by someone who should have died before the request went through. Yeah, we'll use it. It's there. Well, that's the interesting thing. Is that I agree it is very careless, but that's where the arrogance of the Jedi comes in. Um, they felt, or Yoda in particular, knew, I mean, he says at the end of the, at the, end of the film, when Obi-Wan says it's a victory, he knows he's been played. Like, Yoda straight up knows this is not cool. This is not right. We shouldn't have had these clones, but he feels forced to have them because Anakin and Obi-Wan and Padme hadn't, I doubt everything was going down. And then it shows at the end of the film, Yoda essentially admits, no, we got played hardcore and this is going to result in some bad stuff. And then they, and he only admits it to people in the, right. He only admits it to like Obi-Wan and Mace. I guess this is his answer, you know, when he when May says, should we tell the Republic that our ability to use the Force, pretty much all that, you know, like what they're essentially saying, should we tell them that we're kind of useless right now? <laughs> they don't have to say that anymore. They can be like, hey, check it out. We got these clones. We're exactly. not useless. You know, we know it, what we're doing. It's their way of avoiding getting caught with their pants down almost. Like, we, right. Which is exactly what they would have been used like anyway. Yeah, I, I guess my issue with the half of the film being a mystery is that it doesn't feel like there's any, much of any actual resolution for the mystery. It just feels like it kind of forgets the mystery and becomes a war film. That's that's fair enough. But I, you know, that that that's fair enough. It, it resolves, but it not as cleanly as it could have. Yeah, I do enjoy the parts, like the fight between Obi Wan and uh, Jango Fett on the radio oh, platform. It is so epic. good, and the 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 fight in the um, asteroid field with those amazing seismic charges that are just. The you sound can design. Always like Star Wars sound design. Yes. Oh. So good. Yeah, there can be no talking in the room I'm in, like during that moment. Like, no, we have to hear the sound. <laughs> no, the just conversation leave. goes something like where you're just talking and then <gasps> Okay, we can wow. talk again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And this is where we This is where we are introduced to the true prequels of Obi-Wan. You know, he was really he was cool in the Phantom Menace, but this is where we have Ewan McGregor as his beautiful self just being amazing. Oh, yeah. He, and he what it. is crazy, I saw in your notes you pointed this out, and I never really thought about that because I guess it just goes to show how fantastic they sell you on this, but there's only three years after The Phantom Menace, and yet I do not, like, believe, or I, I, I would not doubt for a second that this is a 10, like, Obi-Wan 10 years older. Mm-hmm. Like, he, it's just like the beard and the long hair, but he even carries himself with, like, a sense of like experience that he didn't have. And so it, it really does feel like we went from seeing like a 26 year old to a 36 year old or something like that. And it's fun seeing 
the connection between Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan come into fruition so hard in episode two. Because we see Obi-Wan go from this Padawan that, as y'all mentioned in your last episode, is very much taking cues from Qui-Gon and is very, but is still very adamant about the rightness of the Jedi and the Order. By the books. Right, by the books. We see in this one, the seeds that Qui-Gon planted bloom in, in his own but still be Obi-Wan that he still trusts the Order, he still works with the Order, but he's willing to do things his own way. And he's got that kind of arrogant flair to him that's a little bit more self-assured. I think his arrogance kind of leads to Anakin's downfall, but I still love, like, sassy, arrogant Obi-Wan. <laughs> um, something that I think is hilarious is when he, like, just very openly and publicly like berates Anakin for even mildly overstepping his bounds and he's like we will not have this conversation again Anakin like in that you know he says we will do as the, as the council asks you know we're not we're not here to investigate anything we're going to protect her and that's it and like the second that the assassination attempt happens you know, okay, the droid's gonna leave, we've protected her. He's like, he's the one to jump out the window and track <laughs> he's it down. jumping out a window. <laughs> like, as soon as he's just getting onto him, like, we will, or, we will do what we're asked and no more. Two scenes later, he's jumping out of a skyscraper to get to the bottom of it. But I feel like that's actually a great scene, um, or a great telling moment, is when they're meeting with Padme. I, you can talk about some of the acting, but... The reason that he's berating Anakin so hard is Ewan's acting is actually incredibly on point. Um, You can see on his face. Yeah, always, right? You can see on his face, Anakin, like, you know how we talked about, you know, it's a day in the life when we see Anakin talking to Palpatine. That's what it feels like for Obi-Wan and Anakin. They're they're doing the normal thing. You know, it's a new situation, but they're normal. They're used to this. And Anakin never does that. But it's, it's completely new for Anakin to talk back that blatantly and openly and so he's like we're not doing this now and then Anakin keeps going at it and he's just like no <laughs> we're not doing this now and it's a, it's kind of a telling moment like as much as it pays me to say I think Obi-Wan is kind of a terrible master like he doesn't he never he doesn't seem to wield all that much authority over Anakin other than moments like that, where he'll just like smack him down in public, and it, it like he's kind of it's obviously very humiliating. I mean, Anakin had it coming. He's he's total little jerk, <laughs> but you, I don't sense that kind of master, you know, master apprentice dynamic between them. They seem rather buddy buddy for the most part. Then all of a sudden, when things happen, he just jumps on his authority. And also, like Anakin, Obi Wan so clearly sees what Anakin is going through that he this guy is crushing really hard on Padme, and he doesn't offer any support, any wisdom, any counsel. He just kind of smirks. So it's it's it's, it's Obi Wan's fault that this all happened. <laughs> yeah, and it's true. You you uh, I think we were messaging about this earlier, Gabe, and you pointed out like think about I think probably all three of us. I'm going to assume are going to agree with this statement. Qui-Gon is the best Jedi Master. Yes, definitely one. Um, definitely in there. I, I'm, I, I always hesitate to say the, but yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll agree. Yeah. yeah. I would say the because we never, ever, throughout The Phantom Menace, sense arrogance. At least I don't. He, any doubt he has in the council seems very founded and mature doubt, like, I'm not going to blindly follow what you guys say. I'm going to respect your authority, but at the same time, I'm going to respect what I sense to be the will of the Force. 
And then what Gay pointed out, like when you the opening scene of the Phantom Menace, whenever Obi Wan starts questioning things, uh, he doesn't go the Obi Wan master route where it's like it just kind of patting him down, like no, shut up. It's the like. Yes, you listen to Obi, or you listen to what Yoda said, but you also must like be in the moment. You know, be mindful of the living for. Like he, he uses that you know act of questioning from Obi Wan to actually give him a lesson, and that's how he is throughout. And teachable moments. Yeah, like there's so many little moments of Qui Gon just being a fantastic master, um, and you know, as Obi Wan apologizes, you know, like I, I was wrong to to question you, and I'm grateful that you think I'm ready. And the first thing Qui Gon says is, you know, like you'll. You're already a greater Jedi than I. Like, he's just, like, the perfect mentor. And so, here, Obi-Wan, while I think he always means well, he's just doing a poor job of seeing the kind of person Anakin is. And there's one instance of him kind of acting on what he's noticing whenever the council determines that it's going to be Anakin to protect Padme. And Obi-Wan just says, I don't think that's a good idea. But that's pretty much as far as he goes. Uh, he, he says, I don't think he's ready. He doesn't even bring up, you know, there's something going on between those two. He just says, this dude has been dreaming about her for 10 years. So maybe it's not a good idea. <laughs> Quite openly <laughs> telling me about these dreams. But it's interesting because he actually, he treats Anakin much like the council treated him. If you look in, in that scene, it's not just that he doesn't say, it's not that he's like, eh, I don't know. And then that's it. He go. he essentially goes, Eh, I don't know. The council goes, no, it's fine. Anakin needs a mission. We need to go. And they don't, even though he, Anakin is his apprentice, they don't even really ask for his opinion. It's, and it's a very similar treatment. And so it's kind of interesting, the, the follow through of snubbing, I guess. I don't know. And we can get into, we'll probably get into it more with episode three, but there's also like just a very arrogant way the council itself handles Anakin. Like, they tell him they're not going to train him at first. Then they train him, and they specifically Mace kind of treat him like crap, and yet are very willingly like using him when it's convenient. You're like, oh, he's very powerful in the force. Like he'll he's the right guy for the job. I mean, when I talk to him, I don't like the guy, and I'll probably be mean to him. But uh, he can probably do pretty. <laughs> it's good very much here. like they treat the clones, actually. Yeah, <laughs> definitely here. And I guess we could probably move on to uh, the other side of the plot. Yeah, we've been avoiding it all this time. Um, <laughs> The romance is trash. <laughs> and a lot of it is. What hurts, I think what really hurts this film for me is that whereas you know, the Jedi, the, the crumbling of the idea of the Republic is maybe the thematic core of this film, the dramatic and emotional core of this film is very clearly intended to be this budding romance between Anakin and Padme. Like there's, there's really no emotional weight to, um, Obi-Wan's side quest. It's all anchored in this half of the film. <laughs> it's terrible. It's just... I, I, I take absolutely no pleasure in bashing actors. And I, think <laughs> and I will defend a lot of what Hayden Christensen does in Revenge of the Sith. But he is just horrifically miscast in this role. Like, the he... The character, I think, that he's supposed to be is probably kind of, supposed to be kind of charming and charismatic and maybe kind of roguish... And and someone who like people like, but like, yeah, you're too smart. You you you're too smart for your own good. And he, we, you don't get any of that from Hayden's performance. And it, it's just that 
I mean, he has the worst dialogue ever written in his film history, so that doesn't help. But there's something also just wrong about Hayden Christensen's face at this stage of his life. I don't. It, there's like this twist in his mouth that whenever he smiles, he looks like he's this evil psychopath imagining that he's like strangling you or something. Like <laughs> he's obviously plotting to murder me. Get this creep away from me. And these are the scenes where he's supposed to be charming us. Well, see that that is the one thing I will I will fight you on. It's something in the structure of his face because like it, it's completely gone in Red Like he it's like he aged out of it, his face grew and it changed, but there's something about the way he smiles feels evil. Oh yeah, I, I definitely movie. agree there. So it, it's it, it's like he's supposed to be charming Padme and like winning her with his you know roguish good looks and charm. And he looks like he's about to kill her. So, <laughs> yeah, it, it just doesn't work. But but the one thing that I will disagree with you on is the idea that he's supposed to be rogue, like roguelike or charming, or all that. It's actually like to me, anyways. It's very clear throughout the film. This is, if you think about the character of Anakin, this is I I forget the ages exactly, but we'll say like a nine year old kid. That then this is a several years later. Ten years. He's hit. Yeah, like ten years later. You know, so he's he's nineteen now. Or uh, I, how old is he in episode one? Actually, this would he's be eight or nine. He's, he's nine. Yeah, okay. so he's nine and nine and one, nineteen and two. He has spent the first nine years of his life as a slave with a single mother, and the next ten as a Jedi master. Uh, Jedi master as a Jedi Padawan being taught the ways of the force and to abhor all emotion and to bottle it up and all of that. And he's essentially got delayed puberty going on because of that. And he's only got one person that's ever, he's ever had a kind of care for in his life. That's not been his mom because he crushed a little bit as a kid. And so now that's coming into fruition. We see it here. There's no way he's going to be charming. There's no way he's going to be roguish. He's wanting to be that. But the story but needs can't. him to be. Because the story oh, needs I'm not padded. saying it's a smart decision, but well, I, I, I... Why am... else... What about this creep is Padme supposed to be falling in love with? Like, I have no idea what Padme sees in him. Like, everything, like Whenever they talk, they're always disagreeing about everything. You know, politics, philosophy... And so, like, there has to be something in his personality that Padme sees, and I, I, I don't, I don't know what it is. And I think the scene that I would point to is that, like, not all, it's not even left to us to like try to surmise from her behavior. She comes right out and says it. She says, "Please don't look at me that light or like that." <laughs> no, that <laughs> is to me the weak part of the film is not not Hayden acting awkward because I feel like he's supposed to. It's the whole idea. It's, just, it's worse than awkward. It's downright creepy serial killer. Oh, I, I get. I, I definitely agree. It's more than it probably should have been. But to me, I hate to say this because I, you know, I, 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 of course, crashed on or crashed, crushed on Natalie as a little kid, you know, and for much longer than a little kid because you know <laughs> she grew up with me. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, she, I feel like, really hurt the most. In those scenes, because she went, yeah, she went from downright total rejection to no, I I definitely do like you and care about you and all that very quickly. And like watching it again, I can see where she was supposed to take steps, but I feel like the weakness in the story was that she rejected him so much initially. 
I feel like if they had started it off with a more amiable reception on both ends of, oh, wow, it's been years, you know, yeah, it's been years, but, you know, obviously we really kind of felt like we bonded when we were kids and it kind of picked up where it left off. You'll always be that little boy on Tatooine. <laughs> right. Where if it, like, started off there, but then didn't progress to, okay, you're not so little anymore, that's creepy, but instead progressed to, oh, wow, we're both learning about our new lives and we're kind of which is where it went eventually but because they took that detour it really really hurt it but the reason i don't think you can put i mean i think the blame is almost completely shared down the middle because you know oh if, yeah i'm not saying it's all it, on natalie because you know if you're saying the problem is that she had such harsh rejection at first all of that rejection is justified in fact there never should yeah. have been a turn like Whenever someone says, like, don't stare at me, like, you make me uncomfortable, and then you say, I'm sorry, and then you stare at her again <laughs> with the creepiest imagine. And then you just say, like, oh, you're just like how I imagined in my dreams. Like, like <laughs> it's, it's just every every aspect, every decision made with both of those characters was wrong. Like, he was going one way, she was going the other. The natural human conclusion is that these two are never going to be together. And then you have the the plot needs them to get together. So you have Padme to act against every con- like every human like sense of logic and reason and say, "Oh no, I've been dying." Like, mm-hmm. I've been dying a little ever since you came back into my life. I truly deeply like no one no one in their right mind is going to fall for him. And so you just have these two people behaving in inhuman ways, coming to this unnatural conclusion, like confession of mutual love. I just think it's like right down the middle. There's just every... I think a lot of it actually isn't them. I really do want... I do feel like a lot of the blame goes in the writing. Because... The, the writing and I think Lucas's direction because... Yeah, you know, that's what I mean. Anakin you know, or Hayden is probably playing it the way he's being told. He's like... I mean, any... If you read the script, if you just on paper look at the line, I'm sorry, milady, stares intently. Like, if you look at that on a script, any person of right mind is like, I mean, it sounds kind of creepy. I'll play it kind of creepy. Like, it just feels like he's playing what the script is asking. And, I mean, I do think he's definitely not a great actor here. And part of it does lie on that. But we know he can act because obviously he gets better in revenge. But even here, there are moments of really good stuff. Like when he talks about slaughtering them like animals or whenever his mom dies in his arms and he you kind of, for once he's not creeping. He's like, stay with me, mom. Or the one scene where they actually have like genuine chemistry with each other. When he's, she's like, you're teasing. And he's like, no, I'm, I'm much too frightened to tease a senator. Yeah. Um, or another line that I really like whenever, you know, he's asking her about, I guess someone from her past. And she goes on to describe this dreamy guy. And he's like, all right, I get the picture. Like, there are moments where he sounds like a human. And so I don't think all of the blame can fairly be put on him. I just think it's this amalgamation of actors who weren't experienced enough for this kind of role or this kind of director. A director who should just stick to directing and not writing. And like this, it's just this whole whirlwind of things that didn't come together. Yeah, there are, there are kind of two quick little things that I take though from that subplot. Um, I say subplot even though it's not. Uh, uh, the first being um, one again with Hayden there are little moments like I said where, it really, where I feel like his acting is much better than people give credit it's the way he was told to act that's the problem I feel like he actually acted wonderfully it's just he was told to act like a creep 
Um, but there are, there are a couple moments that show what I'm talking about. One, in the most infamous line of I don't like sand, which personally I feel like gets a little Marthed. Not not compl- not near to the same extent, but like let's be honest, it is not as bad as everybody made it to be. It's the, the rough it, and coarse and irritating. Uh-huh. No, oh I get it. And it gets everywhere. And the emphasis the, on everywhere. The everywhere. But the thing is the the kiss the the broken off kiss, which soundtrack moment, can we just say I love the soundtrack there. How it swells up and then just totally yoinks it out from under you. I love that. I, I love it, but I think it, for the wrong reason. It almost oh, feels but, like, like a parody. Like, da da da. Nope. Like, yeah. Oh, it's funny. But but like what I uh but the moment after that is so great to me. If you look, I don't know if you ever paid attention to Hayden after the kiss fails. He gives this face that just goes. What the heck did I just do? I'm an idiot. I shouldn't have gone for that. The moment wasn't right. This is wrong. Why am I here? What's going on? Like it's this perfect face of you I could, have failed. You could There's say another he's haunted and in agony. <laughs> <laughs> There's another moment where I kind of picked up like not the same kind of emotions, but the similar kind of like, hey, this is a guy that's actually acting. Like, yay! Is whenever you know he's like uh, he starts talking about, or no, she says. Well, Anakin's not a Jedi yet. He's just a Padawan learner. And once, like, he earns some of his anger because he's constantly getting berated publicly. <laughs> like, the guy needs a break. But then he says, excuse me, I was put here for a reason, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, I, I would think it wise to, and she gets kind of arrogant herself. And like That was be- actually one of the better scenes for sure. And you can see the change on his face where, like, he, like, he has this moment of, like, genuinely trying to contain frustration and compose himself he's like you're right my lady like it, it it's such a human moment to me where it really does look like a guy who just wants to start screaming like are you kidding me like come on you don't have to be like that but then it's like okay yes you're right all right let's do this and the only other thing i was going to touch on super briefly was not related to the romance but something that came from it was that we start to see how his mind works and how the path goes because we get little throwaway lines, which I love. The, th- the throwaway lines are really the the winners for, I feel like, in Attack of the Clones. Um, because we get the line of... We get when we're talking with her, uh, her and him are talking about politics. And we get into that brief little moment where he's like, well, they should be made to agree. And then she's like, you're joking. You're talking to the most Republican Republic." Republican ever. You're you're not serious. And he's like, oh no, I, I couldn't see the senator. <laughs> and you know in his head he's going, oh no, I'm so serious right now. <laughs> she found out I'm a fascist. <laughs> exactly. It's like I should probably it's like, you know, it's like if a if a that edgy communist guy tried to talk to like some some you know, I don't know, conservative libertarian person, it's like no, I'm just gonna hide my my political views here. <laughs> I'm just trying to crush on you. So, but yeah, no, that overall, I definitely agree. The romance was by far the weakest. I feel like the greatest thing that could have been done to fix it would have been if you had instead made the conflict center around me, where you take away the romance, not take it away completely, but you focus instead on. The, what's already there, we have Anakin being tortured by dreams of his mother. We have the build-up. We have her death. 
if we had instead focused on that being the cause of his frustration and anger, I feel like there would have been a much stronger and cleaner emotional connection and better acting because that's where he shines. Yeah, and I guess if you did that, you know, Padme's taking almost like a motherly, like, you know, she kind of tries to step into that role of like the older between the two, like she clearly was in The Phantom Menace and she's like, oh, I'm going to console this guy. And then you don't have to have him being the one to crush on her. You can just have him being the guy who's like going through something tough and as she consoles him, now you can almost buy her falling in love because you get to axe all of those horrible, creepy lines. And that's where it was, I feel like that was supposed to happen, but didn't. Yeah, the thing is though, they have already had this torrid romance going full force before they even go to Tatooine. So you axe all that. Absolutely. yeah, I was also, another thing I think would have been to continue the threat of assassination attempts while they are together. I mean, first off, that would just add excitement to this absolutely listless half of the film. But also, I, think, I don't know, man. I got pretty excited when he <laughs> pretended to get stomped by a buffalo. That was, mm, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it would give, it would give, you know, add just energy. But also, it it gives them those, you know, high emotions and stress and things that, like, would make them careless and fall in love. It also give them chances to prove themselves to each other. You know, have Anna, Anna can save her life, have her, him, her maybe save his life. Um, and then also, you know, get them to show each other, you know, what that Anakin will do anything to protect those he loves and that he could admire her dedication and just, you know, make them fall in love because of each other, not because the script said they had to fall in love. <laughs> And because mm. he's been dreaming about her every day since he met her as a nine-year-old, so it's just, it's the little things. So yeah, if if like if you had done that, I think it would then it it would have made you know the choice to go maybe put themselves maybe if had me made the choice that like, yeah we're gonna go save your other even though it might put me at risk this is important to you so it's important to me kind of just like little things like that that make them make them uh fall in love with each other rather than having all of that all the things that should be the fulcrum for their for their relationship happening after the relationship is already fully established. I guess, mm-hmm. uh, since we talked about this a lot, the last thing that I, I want to mention about this, uh, honestly, like, in this whole thing, Padme is not helping uh, this whole situation, <laughs> diffusing this situation by her choices and locations to, like, because as has been established, <laughs> she's the one who's like, we should rely on my expertise on where to go. I'm like, all right, so here's this romantic gondola ride to this balcony, and I'm wearing a dress uh-huh. with no back. Uh, oh, no, we kissed. Golly, how do we cover up for that? I know, romantic picnic out in this, uh, this lovely field. Which I think, again, that's just a totally botched point, where it was supposed to be like, she's totally doing it, but secretly... But we just never get the secretly part, and so it's just like she never's into him. Yeah, and then <laughs> and you so know, things like that feel weird. I was like, oh man, we we really rolled together in this field romantically again. Fireside chat, and an even more revealing. Like it's just <laughs> constantly like, cut the guy a Brit. My goodness, you're not and, helping. It's and it's like literally the next scene after they're rolling in the fields kissing. It's I am in agony. I'm haunted by the kids. It's like, like, where did this come from? Like, and that's the other hard part is that they cut scenes so much and it's supposed to indicate time, but we don't get the time. Yeah. And yeah. And so like, for all we know, there's been like a week of development and that fireside scene starts. It feels like halfway through a conversation. Like they're looking directly at each other. Like someone just said something 
and then they just stop and then he's like I'm and he begins his like speech but it feels like we move in halfway and so to just like to Gabe's point like we go from this very carefree happy scene where for once they do have chemistry because that is a scene where he's like like they're talking about like teasing each other and things like that and it actually feels like two humans interacting and then to go from that (laughs) to like it actually feels like two humans it's true no I definitely agree overall so I guess we should move to what I think we'd all agree is the best part of the film, which is everything that happens on Genosis. First off, Genos, as you mentioned, Genos is just a wonderful planet. I think you know the the termite mounds, and just the very idea of oh. the Genosians. They have that very like it's. I'm assuming it's based on those like African languages, where there's a lot of clicking and 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 but just they they have like this Egyptian kind of accoutrements on their they're wearing it's just a you know, very interesting culture and i love that everything it, it, about them is so unique and, and oh. none of it's focused on it's just it's this stuff in the background and we're just like whoa this is cool but we're just kind of passing it by it's like that that, that i think where's where lucas's world building really shines is that he doesn't he just gives us worlds and lets all this stuff happen in it but it, he doesn't stop and say oh well this is this kind of this kind of culture and, and architecture it's just it just it's just exists mm-hmm. and it's i'm little in the little things that show that like one of my favorite little moments in the film is the build is when Padme and Anakin get captured as they're walking by these relief sculptures. And then it turns out it's actually a host of Geonosians napping. <laughs> and yeah. like that moment where they all shift is just like, oh, <laughs> for me, especially like as a little kid, that was one of those moments that I just loved even that even though it wasn't even the climax or anything like that like yeah it's, mm. it's it's really scary actually oh yeah like for a kid definitely yeah they're just going to the climax just the whole arena sequence is a lot of fun the creature designs are really cool the like the accolade is just horrifying and the i think the 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 rat tiger as the uh i think what, what the the production designer guy called it <laughs> I'm always legitimately scared for Padme as he starts climbing up because this thing is this thing's gonna kill her. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, it's a it's a well done sequence. And just as the fight begins and we finally we see hundreds of Jedi all around the arena igniting their lightsabers, and each one you know, the reveal is so cool. Like it's just uh, we've got these wide shots, and you're just seeing in the background these tiny little like lightsabers ignite. Like mm-hmm. all of a sudden, these random colors that weren't there before just start appearing. Yeah, so there's there's so many good things, and that. That, to me, is what really makes Attack of the Clone shine. Is yes, you know, we just talked about all that romance stuff. But the thing is, that was in the middle of the movie. And at the end of the day, to me, the most important parts of the movie are the beginning and the end. <laughs> because that's when things get going. Not always. Some movies do it better. Like, you know, obviously, we're, we're Batman v Superman lovers. You know, that kind of thing. But if you nail a climax then I am willing to forgive a lot in the middle. And just that is literally a child's dream is to go from, you know, we've, we we know first we have the original trilogy where there's the very few Jedi. There's only a couple, you know, one, two Jedi, one, two Sith. Then to episode one, where we learn there is a whole council of Jedi and a whole temple of Jedi, but we don't see them in action. We just know they're there. And it's this entire film's worth, but they don't necessarily tease you. They just tell you. But it's this tease of there's all these Jedi and we haven't seen them in action to this buildup of two movies worth of waiting 
to see dozens of lightsabers just erupt in a literal arena. And it's just... Yeah, I'm, I'm going to stop gushing for a <laughs> no, second here. I, have, I actually have some criticisms of this part, but I'm going to let you and James gush for a while. Too, I, <laughs> I think... So, you know, just about to come out in the middle half, like, I do think a third, like, a good third act is kind of, it capitalizes on everything it came before. So if your middle chapter isn't very good, the third act will suffer. But what I, what I think it does right is it had, like, two halves of a chapter before, and it's definitely capitalizing on the Obi-Wan portion to me, where, like, his mm-hmm. investigation led him to Geonosis. They're there be- only because he's there. So, really, we, the movie doesn't, They're like... They're here to rescue him. <laughs> good job. Good job. That's right. Um, but like, she seems to be on top of things. Best line. All <laughs> all nine movies out. Best line. <laughs> <laughs> but um, like it, we don't really get like the movie doesn't really capitalize on the Anakin Padme portion until like literally the last frame with their marriage. But this whole arena scene is all like the conclusion to Obi Wan finally unraveling. Like okay, so it was Dooku. Like you have this great build up through Obi-Wan's side and that's the third act to me feels like a continuation of of his side and that's why it doesn't really suffer so much from having to capitalize on on like a weak second half because it's it's a continuation of the part that I liked a lot more whatever you got to tell yourself man oh I'll tell myself and I'll believe that um, <laughs> but you know everybody talks about the arena as their favorite part and it's absolutely amazing but my favorite part and it's only grown uh, my love for it has only grown with you know watching and rewatching the Clone Wars, but the subsequent just full scale assault yes. on Geonosis is mm. like without hesitation my favorite part of this so film, good. and it's where I feel like his directing style really started to become more modern, like with his low camera angles as characters just kind of walk by the 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 lens and these quick zoom like some of the coolest shots ever. We're you know we're right by one gunship and we kind of like we kind of see one in the background and then we just like quick zoom into that like a very like Serenity style um, or we see this command post and then we quick zoom and like all of a sudden now we're like looking right at the commander in it um, you know the low angles looking at these huge armies of vehicles rolling in at each other this that whole sequence is like jaw droppingly awesome to me the shots that follow the rockets and, and this is like. He's he's very open about how he likes you know working with the CGI just because he can do whatever he wants and what he wants to do is awesome and this this the scale and weight that he's able to give to these CGI things and it it doesn't hurt that just the designs are absolutely gorgeous the the Republic um the gunships yeah the Republic gunships are amazing the tanks the spider droids just all these crazy cool designs and just fire and just death being thrown everywhere and. And it's, it's, these beams hitting these large circular th- like when those fall down i just want to cheer and it's never it's never confusing we're we always know exactly where we are the geography so beautifully laid out and, and and that's what the cgi i think is at its best in that battle they probably put all the work into it and this is one shot of after the after the thing has crashed the these the, the we're leaving the fleeing um confederate ship has crashed and the dust comes up 
and we see the droids and um clones coming together and there's like this hailstorm of fire and it, it, it's all we the see, lighting like is, all the bright lights like yeah, piercing all, all, through the dust yeah that was all something the lighting is coming from the lasers and it's just this gorgeous shot in there that like feels like, you know, like a Zack snyder kind of thing just beautiful thing in the middle of you know some other tacky cgi but just moments like that where you see the genius of lucas coming forward i uh, i really loved i just love how he had that moment of Lucas seems to be very prone to just wanting to, and I'm not a bad thing, just keep wanting to go bigger and bigger. But the fact that he had this moment of almost going back to old filmmaking style where he's got like big rocket flares and then he takes this moment to have a shot where we can see like nothing. And it's just like clones, a couple clones like walking in front of the frame and some droids and just a bunch of laser fire in the huge mound of dust. Like such a nice moment. Like it's that old school like World War Two thing where we're like the we're not even looking at anything at first we're just staring at this location and then our heroes walk in a frame they give that very like exaggerated like this way like <laughs> exactly. arm gesture like it it feels like you know that kind of old school way of uh of like portraying soldiers on the battleground. I have a big problem with the the way the arena battle is. Uh, I think it goes back something a lot of it's the editing. It's like Ben Burt edited all of the action sequences in the Phantom Menace. And those are the editing and the way those sequences are structured and built is like absolutely flawless. I think, I think like you could like t- show those in film school here. I think it, it, some of it comes back to the way Lucas shot this battle. He basically got, would have like three or four Jedi together and just, you know, pretend you're blocking lasers and he got like a hundred of those shots and then he kind of just pasted them over each other and then pasted in the droids. So it, it's, we're like cutting between these very like neutral shots of Jedi who are obviously not looking at anything, waving lightsabers around and then cutting to droids. And, and there, there doesn't feel to be any kind of energy in the entire um, arena battle. It just feels like we are cutting between random shots that are kind of giving you an impression that things are happening. But the CG, like the, the green screen is pretty obvious. And it's obvious that the, none of these shots were actually filmed together. There's nothing connecting them between each other. We don't have any of those awesome shots where you know we'll, we'll follow the action as we do in the, the in the later battle outside. It just feels really uh, bloated and unwieldy. Like there's no direction or any kind of uh, momentum in that fight. Uh, it has beautiful moments, you know, like as when the Jedi are like charging across the arena or just things, little things here and there. But overall, I found the the direction of the action and the editing rather disappointing compared to how how. Uh, beautifully put together was in The Phantom Menace. But this is something that I love about the prequels in general, and Attack of the Clones specifically, is, you know, I disagree with your particular criticisms there, but they do such a good job, Lucas does such a good job of giving us finale, that if you don't like that part of the finale, hey, it's fine. We've got two other kinds of finales to give you, and you're gonna love all of it. It's just like he, he this idea of ramming a finale home is so strong in the prequels. I mean, to briefly illustrate, you know, episode one, we've had this build up and we end with a Gungan army against the droid army fighting for Naboo while we've got the the whole counter like capturing the Gunroy with the space thing outside with the duel of the fates all happening and it's all awesome. And then Attack of the Clones, we've got 
we've got, you know, the romance thing resolves, yay. Cool shot with the kiss. Very yes. nice shot with the arena, the music. Oh, yeah. I haven't even talked about the music, and I'm a music freak. Uh, we'll get there. Yeah, it, it's amazing. I guess that would be my, that's my point is that it's all beautifully stitched together. Like the, the climax of the Phantom Menace feels like one single action sequence mm-hmm. here. It feels like three action sequences. <laughs> one of them is like they happen sequentially. Uh-huh. Well, it's four really, because you go from that to the, closer internet battle of monsters versus our three main protagonists which we get very clearly to see each one fight them in their own unique way with their own unique monster then we get the jedi coming in with them fighting off the droids and getting pushed into the center then we get the clones coming in and if you're not happy at this you know when the clones come in it's like i don't know what movie you're watching and then we haven't even touched the lightsaber duel that they somehow managed to make be just as good so far as like hype goes and all that like hit just as well as Darth Maul like mm. no I, as far as hype goes as far as not saying like they it's not Ray Parker okay you're not gonna it's not Ray Parker you're getting Christopher Lee to do a lightsaber fight they did a good <laughs> job but like but like so far as how it just builds and builds and builds and builds. They just, mm, for me personally, it was. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I definitely understand, but I guess that's the problem. I don't feel like it builds and builds and builds. It feels like it's this and then and then this happens and then this happens kind of thing. Yeah. So I, I mean, I definitely agree with like the criticism about like within the arena, but that's why like the clone attack afterwards is like the highlight for me because it does kind of feel with the arena like it's just here's a shot of the jedi here's a shot of the droids here's a shot of the uh the jedi and you usually lucas does a really good job of like showing you who's winning what's happening what's the goal it's something that peter jackson just excels at in his big action sequences like in lord of the rings where you always yeah. have a sense of like and the hobbit and the hobbit yes you know talk about Talk badly about them all you like the, the battle of five armies like is actually one of the most like impressively strategic battle ever put to film <laughs> but uh just beyond that like this does feel like it's like just a shot of these jedi then a shot of these droids and then all of a sudden we get a wide shot of the jedi surround it's like oh, okay the droids were winning i couldn't tell because the movie didn't really tell me that but again it's not this huge you know like it's enjoyable in the moment but then the clones show up and then it's epic yeah although i do have to mention that mace windu is as much as i don't like it when he when he's being a you know the, the head of the Jedi when he's going at it he's awesome. I mean there it, again the tease of hearing things like I don't even remember the, as powerful yeah I was going to say Windu. as wise as Master Yoda and as powerful as Master Windu and we haven't seen him open you know, even look at his saber like so finally getting that is the the behind the back la- uh, laser block as he's running away uh huh and like taking his cloak off as he's falling and then mm. and just so cool and even then like the finale of like Django dying seeing how strategic the more you watch him fighting Mace it's very brief but if you see the way he's shooting at him the way he's trying to aim his shots in different places he's trying to throw off the because he knows it's a Jedi, you know, they block the shots, they do that. He's purposefully being, like, it's not, like, majorly obvious, and maybe I'm too reading into it, I don't know. But the way he's shooting, and the way he's doing, it's like he's 
aiming and firing specific points because he knows that they're hard to hit or they're hard to block, etc., etc. And even when he's been, he's at a disadvantage because, you know, he had a thing almost gore him over. He shows great, he shows like his, his prowess in just staring at it, coming at him again, looking it in the eyes, steadying his aim, taking the shot and dodging. Yeah, and that's also why Django is cooler than Boba. <laughs> For me. Django is cooler than Boba, let's be honest. Boba does nothing. He tracks down a ship, and that's super cool, but on screen he does nothing. Django, like, goes toe-to-toe with Obi-Wan, goes toe-to-toe with Mace, and it takes a decapitation to stop him. Like, the dude is cool. All right, uh, I think you should probably talk about the finale, or the final finale. Um, The final finale. Again, I I hate being the negative Nancy on the show, but I do find the final lightsaber duel between um, Obi-Wan, Anakin, and Dooku pretty underwhelming. Um... The Yoda, when Yoda comes in, I think it does get pretty awesome, but then it's like only like 30 seconds long. It's just the whole thing doesn't doesn't really do much for me. Like, there's the moment where he where Anakin's dual wielding lightsabers. That's awesome. There's the moment when, you know, when Yoda's fighting him. That's awesome. But that's a whole scene. It doesn't do much for me. So, yeah, go ahead. Go, go, go rave about it for a while. I'm sorry. I'm sorry you've been hurt. <laughs> no. Well, okay. So if, I, I'm not as negative, but I am kind of towards that a little bit um just the the dual wielding part is amazing and there's that wide shot of him kind of spinning like with this weird rotation with the two lightsabers and then he cuts like the coil and the smoke goes out like there's super cool moments like that but then to me there's moments that are kind of laughable like the moments that really really ruin it for me are the close-ups of the faces where it looks like both actors just have their hands in the air and waving them around. Yeah, mm. it's like he's doing this like kind of thematic thing where they're both lit by their lightsabers, but the shots are so close and awkward that they don't... It's it's, it's really Like, bad. if you were to zoom out, it literally looks like they're just holding their arms in their air and, like, kind of making circles with their mm-hmm. wrists. Like, there's no attacks in that. Their arms are too high. There's no lunch. Like, it's just... It looks kind of silly. Like the lighting, the way the light reflects off their faces and the smoke is super cool, but it's not a fight. Like, if you pull back, you would see, like, it's just two guys standing like three feet apart, swinging aimlessly. Yeah, that's like, for me, I mean, like, I there's a small thing there, but I, you know, I, I personally just love the coloring there so much. I just like overlook it. It's very reminiscent of like episode five in the yeah, Carbonite, I, like, Mm-hmm. all that yeah i agree with that um, like that's why like cutting cutting the coil and like shooting the smoke up and you've got the, these reds and these greens reflecting off of like the dust in the air it's really like it's cool to look at sometimes but just in terms of the choreography and the way the fight moves i'm i'm way more excited when you hear yoda's cane oh, yeah and he comes oh, in oh yeah and there's this ridiculous, ridiculous movement out there of people who think that it's crazy that Yoda would wield a lightsaber and that he's above that. And I say, whatever. No <laughs> don't listen to those people. You don't need them in your life. That kind of negativity is not allowed. No. Yeah, because the second he pulls that saber out and starts flipping around, oh, I like if you're not losing it in excitement, then you're just wrong. Yeah, the entire notion doesn't make sense. He's a Jedi. This is the weapon of a Jedi. And if a, a person that was two feet tall was going to fight people that were six feet tall, 
with much bigger lightsabers, he would have to compensate somehow. And so ju- force jumping around, I mean, it's it strategically makes sense. And if you're just going to say, well, he's too powerful to have a lightsaber, well, then where are you getting that from? No, that's nowhere in the canon. You're completely making that out of thin air. So shut up and go away. And what I love <laughs> exactly. so much is I, you know, I, I love the Obi-Wan Anakin scene, one, because... It shows Anakin's, you know, still over eagerness. He gets taken out. Oh, I take him now. Right. And then and we get, you know, Count Dooku showing his prowess. One, cool. You know, you thought Darth Maul's lightsaber was cool. This guy's got a curved hill. <laughs> um, like, this is absolutely the the weapon of, like, a high-class evil It's Brit. so elegant. Right. It's such an elegant-looking lightsaber. But anyways, like, he, he takes Obi-Wan out. And then, you know, he takes out... Anakin and the good sequences, but there's so much you know in our heads. You y'all already jumped to Yoda jumping around like crazy, very rightfully. But what is so good to me is how much homage is paid to Yoda as we know him. It is it is still that Yoda, and yet we still because we get the first thing we get is Dooku's like trying to show how powerful he's in the Force now. Like, he's trying to overwhelm Yoda. He's like, I can throw lightning at you now. And Yoda catches it. And then spits it back. And then catches it and just, like, shrooms it into his palm. Which is That moment is so cool. And then we have him tearing the stuff at Yoda and throwing it at him. And Yoda both manages to sell the difficulty, yet show the power of him catching it and like moving to the side. I was so impressed by the CGI, honestly, that his face, his expression, his countenance, like all of it just looked like he was like, "Mm," but he got it. And it's not like he was in danger of losing to Dooku in the force battle. Yeah. First, uh, 2002 fully CGI character. He is truly a character and I, you can tell he's CGI, but you still believe all the emotion and, you know, things going through his head. Also, what's super cool is that as he catches it and he's using the Force, again, they reuse the, the Yoda theme from Empire Strikes Back. Uh, that, that, oh yeah, that is after. That is when, after the lightsaber fight, when he is taking the big pillar and trying to pull it down, that touch of it, like literally one of my favorite musical moments, even though it's a callback and in what episode I love two. That you're saying is like, what he could have done, and this is what it seems like people want to do now. Like, I love the Force Unleashed games, but, like, they've turned the Force into, like, this Super Saiyan kind of ability. And what I love is that Lucas showed, like, impressive restraint. Because in the original trilogy, you know, Yoda has to concentrate on picking up an X-Wing. You know, Luke has to concentrate uh, concentrate on picking up rocks. Darth Vader, in, like, this huge show of strength, is just throwing boxes with the Force. And, like, with CGI... Lucas could have so easily just been like, and now they're throwing tanks at each other. <laughs> but it's like, no, he's like, like, it is, it's work. He's able to do it, but he's catching these pillars that are only like, you know, eight feet tall. And it's like struggling a tad bit. And to me, it's like, man, when you got all of CGI in your toolkit and you're still being like, no, no, in the original tr- trilogy, this was big. And you maintain that, like, props to you for that. Yeah, no, so he did that. So, like, what I love is that, again, kind of like the staging, like, all these finales hitting you, we get these stages of, you know, you say Yoda only fought Dooku for a tiny little bit, 
but you're forgetting that the force section was there too. Like he fights Dooku about as long as Obi-Wan and Anakin do between the force and then the fighting and then the catching. Who cares about the force? Like, I want to see lightsabers. <laughs> oh, the irony of you, of last of the last Jedi fan saying that is so strong to me right now. <laughs> Because that's what I was saying. No, but I, I'm all my half joking <laughs> dislike aside for that. Um, <laughs> the the goodness of having the restraint of showing both sides and paying homage to old Yoda and uh, showing that it is that Yoda, but he's also capable of all these baller things is just so good to me. Uh, uh, we are running ridiculously long. So oh, I, I, I do want to talk briefly about the because I think. The I think this film is actually is like narratively broken, but in the end, as these all these plot line threads come together, where we have, you know, Anakin and Padme getting married, the Jedi meeting together and saying like, "What what the heck just happened to us?" The Republic being militarized, the you know, the clones marching up onto the ship, uh, the the um, the Senate giving emergency powers to Palpatine. All these things are just kind of coming together and overlaid with each other as the, you know, the Imperial March comes on. It's a really gorgeous ending. And um, Dooku going and revealing that he's actually a Sith working under Palpatine, which, mm-hmm. which, and the is, a problem, the which is a problem for me because I don't like Dooku only shows up in the third act. I don't know who he is. I don't really care who he is. So having 20 minutes after his introduction, the reveal that he's actually a Sith isn't really impactful so well it wasn't the thing is the reveal was like you already knew but it's, it, it was it's, more the confirmation it's filmed like a reveal uh-huh what i love though is that we still technically never get a reveal that palpatine oh, yeah. is the we technically never get that reveal it's so obvious at that point but the fact that he still held off on showing it just makes me happy for some reason yeah i, I like, do like that a kid watching this if they're not looking at his chin and comparing it to him to uh, palpatine right. they would not know uh, i like that like he, he the character of palpatine is so completely convincing as a genuine good person yeah and it's you know with lines like like oh, it's it's just too much to bear like or you know like oh what what senator would be bold enough to do that and like it just he seems very genuine at times and so yeah as a kid i'm like what just for five seconds i'm gonna say to you james because i know you hate jar jar something you have to give attack of the clones credit for is fixing him when you in like listening to last thing one of your big problems was that he made dumb mistakes and it worked out well he gets hit really hard like his dumb mistake is the dumb mistake and yes. also yes. he is much more conservative and approached like he feels like he has grown as a character so i'm just gonna throw that in there attack of the clones fix jar jar yeah he's he's certainly like like games at the very uh-huh, beginning they knew they they scale him back lucas listen he's like okay this didn't work out the way people wanted. I can't. What I hate is whenever a director or a writer would listen too much to fans and like write something out of existence in a way that like, sure, fans may like it, but it breaks continuity. Like, so he's like, I'm not going to take, I'm not going to just say, oh, Jar Jar went off over here and he's never going to be seen again. It's like, no, he's still here. This is his function. We're moving on. He didn't work quite like, you know, as well. So yes, Lucas's usage of Jar Jar here was like on point. 
And, and, and it shows Lucas genuinely liked and cared about this character. Because if he didn't, he would have written him out. But he, he, he thought that he was an important enough character to give him resolution. Which, mm-hmm. now I kind of respect, even if I hit the character. Um, <laughs> one last thing, I, I do we do have to talk about the score a little bit. The love theme is absolutely gorgeous. I love how versatile it mm. is. Like, he uses it in, like, sweet lo- scenes, you know, epic romance, uh, you know, tragic, and, or, and, or uh, you know, kind of impending doom. Like, the, the amount of different variations and uses he could get out of this one theme in, within this film is pretty impressive. No, but yeah, I definitely see what you're saying, and it lends itself to transition from one theme to another. Like, we're moving from a lot of different musical cues in that last finale as we're tying up all these loose ends, and we do kind of hear these different variations, and they flow really well. And if I can have one more moment just to talk about a different soundtrack moment, one of my favorite soundtracks is actually the, um, the Tuscan... Speeder Chase. Or not even the Speeder Chase, that's great too, it's so many good moments. It's the Tuscan camp and the homestead part. Um, Whenever she dies, yeah. When she, but like the the there's so many nods to the original soundtrack of like Tatooine, but in such a darker tone. The opening, um, I say like if you were to listen to the song as like a song, the opening of it has that same Tatooine where it's got like a plucky dun dun, dun and like that of a. a it's like a almost a tapping sound, like a dun 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 dun. But I'm a terrible per- voice person, <laughs> I know. But it's very reminiscent of like the Jawa theme in Episode Four. I call it the Jawa theme. I don't remember what it's called. But like when you're kind of talking, you know, the, when the Jawas are doing their thing, they got the sand crawler, all that. But it's done in a much darker tone, so it's got this same vibe. But it's got this new setting, an almost unsettling setting. And then obviously they continue, they throw in other themes, throw in all that. But just so many little moments like that in episode two that just blow me away. Williams just outdoes himself. All mixed with that great sound design, like the seismic charges and that like whistle sound that the speeder makes in Coruscant. Like those, oh, so good. Yeah, and uh, one thing was really charged the electric guitars <laughs> in... Uh, in the uh, the underworld sequence, just I was listening to the soundtrack. I was like, "Did I just hear electric guitars from John Williams? What the <laughs> heck is going on?" Uh, all right, so we got we got to end this. So, uh, very quickly, guys, what is your um, your star rating for this film, and where does it rank in the series? Uh, you first, Joseph. If you're going subjectively, I have to give it like four and a half because I just love it so much. Of if I'm going to try and be a more objective, whatever, I would say like three and a half four because it really i feel like it's its weaknesses are so overshadowed by such a killer finale and having like the other half of you talk about the two sides of the plot having the one half that is so strong and is more relied on than the finale i feel like it ties strong enough that it gets very underrated and the ranking Oh, the ranking as in with other films? I yeah, hadn't even thought about that. Okay. Oh, man, you might not. I, I'm going to go ahead and just say I am terrible at ranking at Star Wars films, so I'm going to let all right, y'all. Fair enough. They're, like, they're all wonderful. You, James? Um, okay, so for my rating, uh, I'll stick with a three out of five, same as I gave Phantom Menace. I do think it has, like, for me, clearly, like, lower lows, but at the same time, it also has higher highs for me. Um, I know that you would probably consider like the duel of the fates the absolute pinnacle. It kind of is. I completely <laughs> understand that. 
But man, I I just have I think the 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 big reason that in terms of ranking as it stands, I would go Empire number or uh, A New Hope number one, Empire number two, Return of the Jedi number three, and then Attack of the Clones number four with Phantom Menace at number five, is because you know we talked a bit about the the politics, and while I enjoy like the actual like being in the politics of the Phantom Menace, the purpose of that plot. I could not be less interested in. I don't care about Naboo. I don't care about the Trade Federation. I don't really care about anything going on in that film. I have fun with it from beginning to end. But there's, I just have so little investment. But whereas here, you know, the mystery may not pay off the way I want it. But the politics being discussed, I think there's way more intriguing stuff going on with the Republic and the Separatists. I have a lot more fun with Obi-Wan's investigation than I do, like, the bulk of the narrative in The Phantom Menace. Um... And the clone attack, for me, is like the action highlight, if we're looking at the two of them together. Um, and this is like prime Yubi, or Yui, Oban, or man, <laughs> I am getting my words mixed up. This is prime you and Obi-Wan. Oh, that's what you were trying um, to say. <laughs> yes, sorry. Um, but yeah, this is like him at his best. And so, you know, we do, like, I do think the romance subplot is the absolute lowest point for the prequel trilogy. But kind of to to mirror a little bit of what Joseph was saying, I do think that's overshadowed by some stuff that I just have so much fun watching. And I think is done really well that I give the edge to uh, Attack of the Clones. I'm going to give it a two and a half. This is the only Star Wars film that I don't consider a good movie. Like, like even The Phantom Menace, I think it has... Even though it's narratively broken, you know the, the the Tatooine subplot feels completely extraneous. It at least it, when it's in its narrative, it knows where it's going. There's a sense of direction, momentum. The pacing is very is very quick, and there's a lot of quality setup and payoff within the writing. I don't I don't think this film really has a core narrative. It just kind of it just drifts around and goes places, and things happen, and then we end. And cool things happen here and there, but I don't really feel like this is a complete film um and the, the only drama in the film is terrible so it, it just doesn't totally work for me like it has moments of genius it has those beautiful lucas things in it but all of those are just kind of moments they're not the movie the movie itself just doesn't work for me as a whole um so yeah this would be this is uh two and a half stars and i would put it after put it on the very bottom so right now for me it's a uh, a new hope empire return of the jedi Phantom Menace, the Attack of the Clones. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Just the, the whole thing is basically going downhill. <laughs> but it, it doesn't feel like that. Uh, aside from this one, I, I do genuinely like all of them. I, I just even I think this one lives up to the prequel criticisms, unfortunately. I feel like it is probably, like you said, the most prequely of the prequels in both, and I would say that in both the good and the bad. Kind of like James is saying, when it is good, it is just to us just that good. I'm not, actually I'm just gonna skip over the entire initial reception. I think people, you're it was pretty it was pretty much the same as with the the Phantom Menace. You know, people had a it got mixed to mildly positive reviews, but it just got a lot of crap over the years, and uh, it didn't have the duel of the fates to at least make people happy. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think uh, we don't have time to go through over that. I think uh, the audience is pretty much aware of this one is you know lumped in with the rest of the prequels, and I think a lot of the bad lines, you know, I, I don't like Sam and things like that are kind of constantly lampooned uh, 
for, are from this one. All right, um, so thanks for coming on, uh, Joseph, for this very, very long and fun, fun discussion. Oh, it, it was my pleasure. I am sorry for rambling so much, but at the same time, I'm so not. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, is, is there anywhere uh, people can find you online or follow you? Uh, yeah, you could uh, go to Twitter uh, at Joseph underscore Vuk, V-U-K-E, like Luke with a V. Haha. <laughs> Yeah, like that, and I'm currently brainstorming a podcast with a close friend of mine, Jordan Collins. Um, we, it's still in the experimental stages, but if you if you go to that Twitter, that kind of thing, you'll see where that goes. Yeah, that, that's where it is right now. And of course, if you wanted to hit up some older stuff, I used to host the podcast Audio Asylum, which our, our beloved James here has been on, um, and also wrote some articles for Article Asylum, the uh, I guess that what's the word for that? The uh, affiliate, affiliated, uh, affiliate, the affiliated site, we'll say. And uh, what, what is what's the website? That uh, articleasylum.wordpress.com. Yeah, that audio, audio. I can't speak, James. Just say <laughs> it again. <laughs> yeah, the articleasylum.wordpress.com. All right. Um, and for us, uh, again, I'd ask you if you please go and rate and review us on iTunes. And if you want to follow us, you can like us on Facebook, where there's Franchise Critique Podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter, where there's fr- at Franchised Pod. And if you want to find our other episodes, you can go to FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. Uh, next week, we will not be reviewing Revenge of the Sith. Instead, we're going to take um, to take a journey through the Clone Wars animated shows. Uh, we're first going to do the, um, the 2003 2D animated Clone Wars. And then after that, we're going to go through the... Uh, the, um, the Clone Wars CGI series, uh, which chronologically take place between now and Revenge of the Sith. And again, if you haven't seen those, this would be a great time to jump on because they, they are they are really awesome. Uh, so, uh, so next week we'll be doing uh, the three seasons of Gendy Tartakovsky's 2D animated show, Star Wars Clone Wars. Yeah, technically they're not canon, but I think there is enough cool stuff and relevant things to the Star Wars as a whole to uh, at least warrant some discussion on. If you haven't seen the series before, it's only about two hours for the whole all three seasons and uh, they are all available on YouTube um, they are, they're, they're pretty they're pretty interesting so until next week we will see you in the sequel she can't do that shoot her or something <laughs>